It comes to no surprise to most of you that there's been a great deal of tension in our country right now, uh, specifically as it pertains to uh, race in our nation. And so uh, this morning, we need to talk about some things. And they're hard things. They're hard conversations. I want you to know I'm, I'm even nervous about this message. It, does, it takes a lot for me to be nervous about a message. But this is one where I, am, I have been praying a great deal that it would be heard right. Um, because there are some things that we simply must speak about. Because our community and our country needs healing. We need Jesus right now. And that means we've got to be able to hear how Jesus is leading us and what he is asking of us and even of us specifically as a church. Amen? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. And where's Ron? Is he in here right now? It's okay. He'll, he, I'm going to invite him up at, at the end. Guys, let's pray. Can we do that? It is a church after all. Prayer should be okay, right? Let's pray. And then we're going to get into what for some of you might be a hard conversation. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you love every single person sitting here. God, from the front row to the back row, to those in the hallway, to the kids who come into this school and are, are getting educated to the teachers, to the staff. God, you love our community, our city. God, be it Woodstock, be it Kennesaw, Ackworth, Marietta, downtown. Lord, you love the state of Georgia. You love our nation. And God, we are a nation that is hurting right now. And we're looking to you to bring help and peace. Jesus, I thank you that you are, in fact, the Prince of Peace. And we are calling upon you right now to be the peace that we need so desperately. Let your presence be here with us today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Someone's excited. <laughs> Guys, I'm going to stick closer to my notes than I normally do. If you know me, I love to get fiery. I like to sweat up here and spit a little bit, and, and you know, I get after it. Maybe I don't like to sweat and spit, but that just kind of happens inevitably. Um, but this is a message, guys, where, where the subject matter is, is sensitive, and I have to choose my words right. And here's what I'm asking from you. I'm going to talk about some things that, frankly, I have not experienced. But just because I haven't experienced them doesn't make them unreal. And it doesn't make them untrue. And it doesn't mean that we don't have work to do. And so if I use words that, that <laughs> in my attempt to communicate this, and you're sitting here and it's sitting wrong in your soul or in your heart, here's what I want you to know on the front end. My heart is for you. 
heart is for you and it is for this church. And so I'm doing my best to communicate in a way that's clear. But I'm also asking that you would extend some grace to a 36-year-old guy as of today who's doing his best to try to bring a church together and to bring a community together. Does that make sense this morning? Here's what I'm not doing today. I'm not getting into the particulars of, of cases right now or situations. Here's what we know. We've got a lot to be grieved over in our hearts. Can we just say that for a minute? It's just, there's a lot of pain in our nation, and that should hurt us. And Jesus invites us to grieve with those who are grieving and to mourn with those who are mourning. And so before anything is said and before I get into any particulars of this conversation, know that our hearts should be grieving and that we should be broken over the brokenness we see in our own nation right now. This should, this should burn in us. It might bring you to your knees to pray. It might produce tears. It might produce anger. And all of those things are good and they're viable and they're right. Sometimes in the midst of our emotion, understandably so, it makes having conversations hard. I'm one that I have to be careful of social media. <laughs> I'm one of those people who can get sucked right into the, the rabbit hole of, of the online social media fight that goes on for days on end with, accomplishment, with accomplishing nothing. And so that's what we're not doing today. <clears throat> when you open your Bibles, if you're on your phone, there's a couple writers in the New Testament. His name is, there's a writer named James, uh, who was a brother of Jesus. And when you read uh, the book of James, there's just five chapters, I believe. It's very direct, and it is straight to the point. He's speaking to a Jewish audience, and James cuts right to the chase. He, I mean, just right out of the gate, he's throwing punches. And generally, oftentimes as Christians, we read that and we love the clarity. We love the focus because he's speaking to the Jews at the time, which we have the easiest ability to relate to as Christians in the, in the 21st century. And he just comes right out of the gate with tremendous clarity and action steps and what you need to do. But you know what Paul does when he's writing in the New Testament? He's using really long sentences. And he's writing these just what at times feels like horribly long paragraphs. And you're sitting there and you're reading them and you're thinking, okay, what is my man talking about? And he goes on for chapter after chapter. And you know who he is speaking to? He's speaking to Jews and he is speaking to Gentiles. We have a church, the early church, that is filled with two very different groups of people. And in order to see those people get together and come together and have unity, Paul has to work very hard to provide context so that they can understand and see clearly 
and worship together. Because while it may not seem like a big deal to us when we read it, for Jews and Gentiles to come together under one roof and worship God, it was a big deal. So much so that they could hardly even have a potluck together. If you're new to church, potluck is a nice churchy word that we use for people bringing food together after church is over and everybody grubs up. If you grew up in like an older church and you had the, what do you call it, the, not a cafeteria, what do you call that? The fellowship hall. Yes, the fellowship hall. Everybody went to the fellowship hall and had their, their pots and their crock pots and all that stuff. This was, the, this was the, 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 the New Testament version of that, right? And they could hardly come together because there was such discrimination. There was such prejudice. There was even racism. Yes, true story. When you read scriptures, it's on the front pages of it. You have Jews who are wanting to bring kosher food to the party. And you have Gentiles who are trying to roll up with the honey-baked ham. Okay? And they're trying to do life and worship God together, and it's really hard. And so when Paul is writing his letter to the early churches, he does so knowing that there are two groups with two very different world experiences, even though they live in the same area, even in the same city, the same country, with the same government, their experiences are very different. Their experiences trying to worship God and come together under one roof to worship Him are very different. And so he belabors the point to try to bring them together. And that is the backdrop that we see in many of the New Testament churches is Paul working really hard to give people context. So they have a picture that they're working with. And one of the things that challenges us in American Christianity is oftentimes we just forget the context that we're working with. I want you to look around for a minute. Literally just turn your head and look because one of the things that we have tried very hard to do, this is in us, this is the dream that we have in our heart. that we would be a church that's multicultural. People that are not just white worshiping God in one roof, under one roof. People that are not just black worshiping God under one roof, but white, black, Latino, Indian, Asian, and every other ethnicity under the sun would be able to worship God together. Because, ladies and gentlemen, if we can't do it here, where can we do it? Because there's going to come a day where we are all one people 
worshiping God in heaven, and it's not going to look like one color. It's going to be all peoples of all nations that have bowed their knee and opened their mouth to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and they're giving him his worship. I don't know what it's going to look like. But it probably would be a good idea to learn how to do it right now. Amen? And so, guys, here's what I want to do. We need to talk about some things that, that for many of us, don't, we don't have much context for. And I'm going to do my best to speak to this, and I am not trying to speak for a people group on how they feel. That would be disingenuous, it would be inauthentic, and it would just be dumb. But I'm just going to lay out some history for us because it's easy to forget it. Can I do that today? This is not a message of shame. This is a message that my, with my prayer being that it actually brings us together with hope and clarity for what God is calling us to do. We live in the United States. And much of what we see in the news is, 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 is our issues of race, race and inequality and tensions that are, that are surfacing right now. And if you know much about slavery, our country, this country, was, was in many ways established and grown to the, to the place of prominence with slavery as the backbone of how we got things done. And how we were, were able to become prosperous as a country. Slavery was a part of this new world by the 1620s. And with little more than 200 years later, the amount of slaves in the United States would be about 4 million. Which is the size of Los Angeles City. And so for 265 years, slavery was not only legal, it was institutionalized. African Americans were property. People that you are sitting next to right now, worshiping God with right now, meant as much as a phone or a pair of shoes or something that you own. Even after the abolition of slavery, I believe it was 1865, Jim Crow laws existed in our country. And if you're like me, you may not be familiar with all of this history. You might know it roughly. But Jim Crow laws existed from 1890 to about 1965. And those laws enforced racial segregation in our nation. Separate restrooms, separate schools, separate restaurants, separate transportation, separate drinking fountains, separate everything. Separate housing uh, blocks, separate lenders, separate 
everything. And this was happening in the 1960s. And just to give us a frame of reference, that's basically 50 years ago. So as we talk about context, and I realize that there are other contexts to add to this conversation, but the one we're specifically speaking about is the context that our nation is broken over at most right now, and that's between black people and white people. And oftentimes, that context we're working with is one that we just forget, that this thing that we call slavery or inequality or segregation was not that long ago. 50 years is not a long time. It's not. And so oftentimes there are things like, shouldn't we be past it? Shouldn't people have gotten over it? Well, I'm not racist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I hear what we're saying. I get it. But we are forgetting the context that many people are working with, that many people are currently still even experiencing. In our digital age of social media news outlets, how many of you have been following the news on, on Facebook, on social media? You've probably been glued to it on your phones, on your computers, on your iPads. If you still watch the television for news, also that. You're a dying breed out there. <laughs> if it did not happen five minutes ago for us, it's gone. We forget it. Do we not? If it wasn't yesterday, we just forget that it even existed. If it's not front page news, it's not any news. So when the African-American community speaks of being marginalized or discrimination or racism and connects that to a history of oppression, oftentimes it can feel, if it's something you didn't experience, like someone's coming from a different planet. What city do you, does that person live in? Because that's not what I have experienced. But we forget the larger picture and the larger context with which it's also connected with even though there is also still current discrimination and current marginalization that exists. It was 50 years ago that our Supreme Court was still enforcing law that made it clear that African Americans were not as valued as white people. 50 years ago. That's not very long ago. Amy told me something which just blew my mind. She was at a, a convention for, or a conference rather, for homeschooling this past week. And they had everyone raise their hand for some different things. <clears throat> raise your hand here if you know your parents' middle name. Me too. Raise your hand if you know your grandparents' middle name. Look how, many, look how many less hands just went up. Now raise your hand if you know your great, 
grandparents' middle name. Two, maybe three. I want you to hear this. We're talking three generations removed. And that's how quickly you're forgotten. That's how quickly your life, and this isn't to discourage you or depress you, but to, 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 in terms of, of us forgetting things and history, having the impact and the information that it should provide us as we look at making decisions, oftentimes we just simply forget it. We forget. It doesn't have significance or context for us, and it needs to. And I'm not providing a message this morning to say, oh, pity these people, or these people are, are, are to be victims, or somehow the, the white shame or white guilt. Not at all. But we need some context, do we not, for conversations that need to happen. And before any conversation can really happen, we need to be reminded of where people are coming from. Pastor Brett Fuller, who's a friend of mine, a leader uh, in our ministry, is an African-American pastor in Washington, D.C., and is arguably one of the most um, significant pastors in America to lead a biracial church. And he wrote this this past week. He said, There's no way to understand the psyche of the black man without understanding his improbable birth through extraordinarily narrow sociological canals. Being sociologically marginalized and constitutionally disrespected for centuries has an effect on a people. Most African Americans have learned to bear their pain well, and some have even been healed, but none have developed amnesia. It only takes one discriminatory incident, real or perceived to unearth the pain of many generations. And so here we are, dot, dot, dot. I thought he voiced it so well. And I'm not speaking on behalf of, of African Americans this morning to try to identify with your pain of growing up or living here in the United States. I can't do that. As I want you to know, I have not experienced what many have described to me as having experienced. I can't make that up. I can't sit here and try to just falsify my experience. I, I haven't. I didn't experience that. But what I can do because God has called me to be a brother and sister to you and for you to be a brother and sister to me is I can work really hard to hear what you have to say, to hear you, to not ignore you, to not disregard what you have to say or how you feel. That's actually wrong for me to do. Just because I didn't experience it, just because I don't experience it, doesn't mean that there aren't people right now that are. And when you turn on the news, and if it, it, you might be, you know, like some of the voices on Facebook wondering, what on earth? I, I, this is a strange thing. What's, what is happening? What we're seeing isn't just an isolated incident, but, 
but generations of pain that are rising to the surface. And so we are in a divine moment right now as a church to do something about it. The ministry we are a part of is called Every Nation Ministries. And one of the the, the things that I believe God has divinely put upon us is to model what it looks like for brothers and sisters to walk together in unity that our community might see that it's possible. Because in these moments, what the tendency is to do is to lean on social reform. And while that's great and while it has its place and it has its moment in the conversation, social reform will not do what the gospel can really do, and that's create social transformation. Because at the heart of this, it's not that we live in a country. Hear this. We all need to hear this. I don't believe we live in a nation where white people hate black people. I don't believe that that is the country we live in. I don't believe we live in a country where we can just generalize and say black people hate white people or that we hate police officers and vice versa. That's not right. And the only way to get through some of the things that are out there right now that we can get stuck on, that we can become bitter about, that we can become unforgiving about, that we can become walled up about, that we can become prideful about, is to allow our hearts to be further transformed by the gospel, by Jesus Christ, by him and him alone. Only Jesus can truly transform us in a way that allows us to serve someone that does not look like us. Only Jesus can change us and make us new to love someone that doesn't look like us, to hear someone, to get on our knees and cry for someone and pray for someone. Only Jesus can truly do that. Only Jesus can do that, and it's why the answers must begin with the overcoming blood of Jesus Christ spilled for his church. Am I making sense at all this morning? If congregations like ours, like High Point Church, will be determined to be the salt and light that Jesus talks about, that he intended. We can become a church that brings healing to this community. We can. Here's the other thing that the gospel does, ladies and gentlemen. The gospel transforms, but the gospel allows us to forgive. When Jesus hung on the cross and said, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That is a message for every single one of us. Is to be willing to forgive. That God would take our foes and make them our friends. And the way that that takes place is by you and I humbling ourselves. And being willing to extend forgiveness. The word forgive literally means to release from debt. I release you from this. I am asking that you would forgive me, that we can forgive each other, that we can walk in a perpetual place of forgiveness with one another. 
Because ignorance, I promise you, will abound. Misunderstanding, I promise you, will abound. Offense will be clamoring to take its root and its place in your heart and in your life. And the only way to work against it is to be transformed in such a way that you are willing to forgive. Even when somebody else doesn't even know what they're doing. And they don't know that their actions are hurtful or their words are hurtful or that their words are offensive. It is only the gospel that gives you and I the capacity to forgive the way Jesus forgives. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You know why we forgive? First and foremost, because Jesus forgave you. That's it. I'm not saying it's easy. It's really hard. But we get to walk in forgiveness because Jesus forgave us first. When we blew it, when we jacked it up, and when our sins sent him straight to the cross. And lastly, guys, before we hear some stories of true transformation which is why we're gathering here today, because of what the gospel can do in people's lives, is that we need to be reminded of the power of that gospel, the power of Jesus Christ to transform. Jesus can make you the best version of yourself. Nothing else can. Nothing else can, can make you the best decision maker, the best transformed parent, the best transformed teacher, the best transformed follower of Jesus, the best transformed boss, the best transformed white person, black person, Asian person. I don't care what person you are. The gospel gives you the capacity for your heart to be transformed and be made new. You are not yourself any longer. And that means in Romans chapter, I get it, Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You and I aren't defined first and foremost anymore by what we believe, by what we think, 
by our skin color. We are def- although that's true and real, and we should be proud of our heritage. When you are made new in Jesus Christ, your first identity before anything else is that you are a new creation in Jesus. You are a follower of Jesus, and that, more than anything else, defines you first. That is what marks you first, is that Jesus Christ has changed your life, and he's transformed your heart. Amen?